We're going to have several different scripture references today, but the first one will be in Ephesians 2, if you want to go ahead and find your way there. More than likely, unless something really just stirs in my heart this week, this will be the last sermon in the Restoration Series. And I hope and pray being on the receiving end over the last several weeks has been as valuable to you as the months of preparation were to me getting ready for this series. In week one, we said that the entire narrative of the Bible, the story of God, is a story of restoration. God's purpose in the world has been to reverse the curse of sin. In the process, restore people, restore our relationships, and ultimately restore the entire earth to its original, perfected, and intended state. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about what it looks like for God to restore us. So the plan, as we said in week one, is to restore us, to restore our relationships, and restore the whole earth. And in the second week, we talked about what it looks like for God to restore us. And I think many of us sense what we talked about that day, an Amos 9 season of accelerated restoration is headed our way. Our rally cry has been, I smell rain. There's an expectancy that God is up to something, that we're on the verge of something special. We kind of skipped over the relationship piece and went straight to our future hope by looking last week at Revelation 21 where Jesus talks about the new heavens and the new earth and he says, behold, I'm going to make all things new. It's the crescendo of God's restoration plan and in the end, the restoration of all things in the end. And we focused on our future hope and this was the key takeaway from last week. What you believe about your future will determine how you respond in the present. This week, we're going to come back to the relationship piece and get very practical as we look at what it looks like for God and the gospel to restore broken human relationships. In the Bible, relationship restoration is often referred to as reconciliation. And today, we're going to see how being transformed, understanding the gospel, being transformed by the gospel impacts relational reconciliation. One of the consequences of sin in our world and in us is alienation, but it's not just alienation from God. Sin causes alienation from each other, alienation in marriages, between parents and children, between siblings, between neighbors, coworkers. I mean, sin is the reason for relational alienation. And the gospel's promise is not just a promise to restore us in our alienated state back to God but it also has the power when lived out, the gospel has the power to restore us in relationship to each other. The good news is that full restoration of broken relationships is possible. The challenging news is that in our sinful state, we have to work for it. We have to strive for it because it doesn't happen naturally for us. It's not our default. In default human relationships, they break down. So we have to strive for it. And we do that by owning our offenses, confessing our faults, seeking forgiveness, and offering those who make mistakes the same love and grace that God offers to us. Relational breakdown is not new. It's been around ever since sin entered in the world. Matter of fact, you see the impact of it as early as Genesis 4 when two siblings split and a murder took place. It's been a problem since then, and it was a problem in Paul's day during the first century church. That's why Paul writes what he does in Ephesians 2. He's speaking to two groups of people that hated each other because of political, ethnic, and racial, and religious differences. Many of both of those groups, many people from both groups had come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
They had come into this New Testament church, and now Paul is dealing with these two hostile groups that have people that, as individuals that have now come from those groups into faith in Christ. They're in the church, in the Christian community, and they're holding on to their political, religious, racial hostility as members of the church or as a part of the New Testament church. So Paul writes to remind them in Ephesus, when God made new creation out of you at the moment of your salvation, he also made a new creation out of all the relationships in your life, the way you respond to people, the way you look at people. And he writes this in Ephesians 2.14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles, that's the two groups, into one people in his body on the cross In his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles. How? By creating in himself one new people from the two groups. So he created a new community, like a new body, a family of faith was created. So it's no longer Jew and Gentile, it's the body of Christ. So out of the two groups that hated each other, he has now formed a new community, a new creation out of relationship, invited them into that new community. So together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his own death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. So you can clearly see here how the gospel is a gospel of relationship reconciliation when it's understood and lived out. Today, I want us to look at this in a very practical way by thinking about what it means to forgive, deeply thinking about what it means to forgive. Last week, we learned a lot from the early church about looking at the way they held on to hope, a future hope, in the face of their suffering. Remember, what you believe about your future determines how you respond in the present. We learned that from them last week. Today, I want us to learn from them again. I want to give you three, really quick, three distinct ways the early church was different from its surrounding culture, and we're going to lean into the third one, but I I want to mention the other three. There were three major ways the early Christian church was very different from the pagan Roman culture around it. First, in a culture that was clearly divided among racial, ethnic, religious, and social class lines, the early church placed a strong priority on caring for the poor and the marginalized, all while accepting and including every class, every race, every culture into their community as a family. Literally, the gospel made a family out of people that had once been enemies. And that was unheard of in the Roman Empire. You just didn't have these groups of people that came together and loved each other and had community. It stood, the gospel, the Christian community stood in stark contrast to the culture around it. That's the power of the gospel. Second, the early church's biblical framework on sexuality The way it understood sex and family and marriage was radically different than the dominant pagan culture of Rome. If you go back, I know we think it's really bad today, but if you go back and read history, you'll see that first century Roman culture was just as confused and jaded in the area of human sexuality as our own culture is today. And the church established a framework that was starkly different than the culture around it. Third, and this is the one I want us to lean into today, Those early Christians were radically different from their surrounding culture in the way they approached forgiveness and reconciliation. The early church was a forgiving, reconciling community. They were constantly being persecuted, but they were also constantly being taught to forgive from the teachings of Jesus, from the writing of the early apostles, to never seek vengeance, to never retaliate. And they sought to forgive and reconcile not only among themselves, but also even with the people that were persecuting them. 
So if being transformed by the gospel produced a forgiving, reconciling culture in the early church, what should that be saying to us today as 21st century Christians? To answer that, I just want to spend the rest of our time talking about four common misunderstandings when it comes to forgiveness. I think we, we are in the situation we're in socially in this country. I think we're in some bad places in the church right now because we don't understand biblical forgiveness. We don't act on it, and when we do preach it and teach it, we preach a lopsided version of it. And I want us to understand some, some misunderstood things about biblical forgiveness. And here's the first one, forgiveness and accountability. A lot of people think these things are opposites, that forgiveness and accountability, holding someone accountable, forgiving them, and at the same time holding them accountable for the wrongs they've committed, that those things are totally opposite each other, that you can't do both of those things at the same time. As if the point of forgiveness was to remove any consequence or accountability for wrongdoing. And that's just not the nature of biblical forgiveness. Biblically, you can forgive someone in your heart and still hold them accountable and still pursue justice. To get this, you have to grasp the nature of God's justice in Scripture. The purpose of God's justice was always an expression of His love, even when His justice seemed harsh. And here's why. Because the most destructive thing you can do for somebody or a group of people or a nation is to let them continue on in their sin. Because sin will eventually destroy that person or that nation. So ignoring it is unloving. Listen to this wisdom from Proverbs 27.5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. The idea here is that it's more loving to confront and hold people accountable than it is to hide the truth and cover it up because you have this misunderstanding of what forgiveness really is. If you think forgiving someone is equal to letting them off the hook for the wrongs they've committed, you're actually being unloving toward that person because you're contributing toward the probability that they're going to continue in their destructive behavior. This is the very reason abusers look for churches that teach forgiveness without the biblical balance of accountability. Because they think, hey, if I get caught in that church, it's just going to get swept under the rug in the name of forgiveness. But they and many churches fail to understand walking in forgiveness does not mean you don't seek justice. As a matter of fact, it's unloving not to hold the abuser accountable. It's unloving to society and the church because of the possibility of future abuse. And it's unloving to the perpetrator because you make it easier for them to return to their sin. Forgiveness and accountability. Forgiveness and seeking justice are not oil and water. They are not mutually exclusive. They do go together. Accountability and justice actually can be expressions of love when they are pursued with the right motives. Now, if you're seeking justice as a means of vengeance, punishment, and retribution, that's not walking in Christian forgiveness. But when you're attempting to forgive in your heart, and for the sake of change in the wrongdoer, you seek accountability and justice, then you can do both. You can forgive and hold people accountable. It has to do with the motive of your heart. Now, think about it this way. Let's say a, a woman is married, she has kids, and her husband abuses her. He's just beat her, he's just hit her. That woman, 
for her own sake, for the sake of her children, for the sake of society, the possibility of other victims in the future, and even for his sake, the sake of the husband. Because it's never loving to let somebody continue in their sin. That woman needs to immediately get to a safe place and reach out to local authorities and let her husband be prosecuted if necessary. Out of love for her kids, out of love for others, out of love for herself, and out of love for her husband, she should immediately seek accountability and justice for his wrongdoing. Yes, she should begin working out forgiveness in her heart. But biblically, forgiveness does not mean she sweeps wrongdoing under the rug. It can actually be unloving to do that. Because without confrontation, accountability, and consequence, her husband is not likely to change. For us, the key is motivation. Are we seeking accountability and justice as an expression of love in hopes the person is transformed? Or is our motive to punish somebody? For the sake of vengeance, retaliation, and revenge. The first is a part of biblical forgiveness. The second is not. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. It all comes down to the motive of your heart. And according to scripture, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. So without the real transforming power of the gospel at work in our lives, we're always going to seek to repay evil with more evil. But if we're being transformed by grace, we can be forgiven, forgiving of another person while we still seek accountability and justice. Here's a second common area of misunderstanding when it comes to biblical forgiveness. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Choosing to walk in forgiveness does not guarantee that reconciliation is going to happen with the other person or the other parties involved. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Remember what Paul says in Romans 12, this time in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Which means it is possible That you do everything right and reconciliation still not happen. Paul makes it very clear. We have the responsibility, do our part as believers, and walk in forgiveness. But that doesn't mean the other party is always going to respond in a way that makes relational reconciliation possible. We're called to walk in forgiveness. We're called to keep the door of reconciliation open. But the other party has a responsibility in the process as well. So Paul says, as much as it depends on you. Do your part, but you can't control the response of the other party. Now, let's think about this through the lenses of the gospel and see how being transformed by the gospel impacts our relationship with other people that have wronged us. In the Bible, forgiveness has two dimensions. There's the vertical dimension, your relationship with God, and the horizontal dimension, your relationship with other people, and on this case, we're talking about other people that have wronged you. So when you're thinking about forgiveness and reconciliation, you have to consider both dimensions. Each relationship, your relationship with God, your relationship with people has two components. When you think about the first component of your vertical relationship with God, you have to first start out with the bad news. And the bad news is, I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. And when I understand that, when I truly get that, it humbles me. And that humility of being able to see myself for what I really am helps me when I need to forgive other people because I realize I'm a sinner too. And there's no superiority here. 
But there's also some good news. That's the bad news. There's also some good news in my, my vertical relationship with God because there is a very high cost that was paid for my forgiveness, which speaks to me about my value before God. When you think about what Jesus went through in order to offer you forgiveness, it stirs gratitude and joy. When you really think about it, you get a gratitude in your heart and a joy in your heart. Forgiveness is free for us, but it was incredibly costly to him. When I grasp that, when I understand that, I feel deeply valued and I get this, this, this overwhelming sense of grateful joy. So when I think about my vertical relationship, there's a deep humility because I know I'm a sinner. And secondly, there's this deep sense of joy and gratitude when I look at the cost of my forgiveness. But here's the kicker. None of that would have been activated in my own life without my repentance. Jesus died for me. He wants to forgive me. The Holy Spirit is pursuing a relationship with me. But none of that matters if I don't make a choice to accept it and repent of my sin and confess him as Lord. God's forgiveness is activated in my life through my repentance. That's the gospel. Now, in light of the gospel, in light of that reality, think about how that understanding impacts how you relate to somebody that has wronged you. When you're humbled by your own sinfulness, but at the exact same time, you have a deep sense of security in God's love and acceptance for you, it gives you a new identity. You have a new place with which to deal with injustice and wrong. So it keeps me humble before people even when they wrong me because I know I'm no better than they are. There's no superiority. But at the same time, I have this secure position of acceptance and assurance that, that gives me the ability to respond to wrongs that are committed against me drastically different than what most people would expect. Here's how this looks practically. This probably should have been on your screen. But as notes, but I just couldn't figure out a way to make it look right on the screen. So you just have to, you just have to trust me here and or, or write this, do the old-fashioned way. Instead of holding up your phone, taking a picture, uh, the new-fashioned way, you have to write this down or do something. All right. So here, here's what walking in forgiveness looks like practically. And this is important. Forgiveness is often granted before it's ever felt. Okay, that's important. Forgiveness is often granted before it's ever felt. And here's why. This is two, because forgiveness is a commitment that you make to other people based on what God has done for you. Forgiveness is often granted before it's ever felt because it is a commitment you make to other people based on what God has done for you. You understand the gospel, which positions you to offer something somebody may not deserve, just like you didn't deserve it. It was given freely and given to you. Okay, so forgiveness is given before it's felt because it's a commitment You make to others based on what God has done for you. And number three, here's how that looks in everyday life, practically fleshed out in everyday life. It means if I'm that person, I'm choosing to forgive before I ever feel it because it is a commitment I'm making to others based off of what God has done for me. This is what it looks like. I'm not going to keep bringing this up, this offense up over and over again to the person that offended me. I'm not going to slander that person to other people, and I'm not going to allow myself to brood on it or ruminate on it internally over and over again. In Texas, we call that chewing the cud emotionally. You just let it stew and stew and stew in your heart. And when you're walking out forgiveness, you are, you are you're granting it before you feel it because it's a commitment you're making to other people based on the commitment God has made to you, and then you're going to practice it by not ruminating on it, slandering people, trying to ruin their reputation, and bringing it up to them over and over again. So based on that, here's what I should do. I go to the person that has wronged me. 
And if that doesn't work, according to Matthew 18, I take somebody with me, a more mature believer in the faith, I take them with me. There's a whole series of how you do this confrontation thing in, in Matthew 18. So I go to the person, I confront the wrong. I may even need to do something to hold them accountable and pursue justice. But in my heart, I'm not going to let it stew. I'm not going to slander them. I'm not going to try to destroy their reputation. It's a commitment you make based on your understanding of the gospel. You may still feel angry in the moment. But forgiveness is granted based on a commitment before it's ever felt. But if you keep acting those three things out over and over again, eventually acting out the gospel... As they say, you're more likely to act yourself into a feeling than you are to feel yourself into an action. If you keep doing those three things, it will eventually soften your heart and transform you. But here's the big question. What if the other person doesn't respond positively to my commitment to forgive? Do you remember what Jesus was saying in Mark 11? He was really teaching on prayer. And while teaching on prayer, he just made this off-cuff statement about forgiveness. He says in this, verse 24, Mark 11, 24, I tell you, you can pray for anything, but if, and if you believe that you have received it, it will be yours. Verse 25, but when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. What I want you to see there, there's no condition to your forgiveness there. there. There's no wait and see if they come and ask for your forgiveness or they apologize, then you grant. No, no. There's no condition here. He just says, you freely give, make a commitment to freely offer your forgiveness. No conditions. But then compare that to what unfolds in Luke 17. And this is where you see there is a big difference between the act of forgiving and reconciliation really happening. They don't always have... You can never have reconciliation without forgiveness. But you can have forgiveness and reconciliation not happen. Luke 17, verse 3. So watch yourself, Jesus says. If another person sins, rebuke that person. Confront it. Accountability, justice, okay? Confront the person. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if the person wrongs you seven times in a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. Now, the Talmud, which was the early Jewish school of thought, like Paul, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they were all influenced by the Talmud. And the Talmud taught, early Jewish teaching, that you were supposed to give, if, you were, if somebody wronged you, you were supposed to give them, forgive them three times, and after that, you're off the hook. That was the Talmud. Then Jesus comes along with this radical idea compared to the Talmud in Luke 17 and says seven times in a day. Which is why Peter sought clarity in Matthew 18 when he asked in Matthew 18, so how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody when they sin against me? And Jesus says 70 times 7. Now that's, he didn't mean 490 and then you're off the hook. It was a hyperbole, okay? An extreme exaggeration to prove a point, very different from the three times in the Talbot. But what I want you to notice in Luke 17 and Matthew 18, reconciliation, not forgiveness, reconciliation is contingent on the offending party's willingness to repent. If there is repentance, forgive. Now, that may seem like a contradiction because Mark 11 says, don't wait around and ask for your forgiveness, forgive. 
And that's the mandate to believers. That's the expectation. Forgiveness was freely offered to you. You freely offer forgiveness. But your relationship with God was not activated until you repented. And the reconciliation in your relationship with other people, you can forgive, but it's not going to be activated until they repent. It's the same way. This is not a contradiction. It's talking about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness can be offered without reconciliation happening. Just like in our relationship with God, it's true in our relationship with people. But here's where it gets dangerous. If you're not at least trying to forgive before you go confront the sin or the person, and this is why this is important, you may not, you may not, you're, you're granting something before you feel it. I get that. The Bible understands that. We're going to talk about that. So if, but you've got to be careful that you don't go confront the person and the wrong without working on a forgiving heart before you go. Because if, if you go to reconcile or confront before you, before you work on forgiveness in your heart, you're not going to go to that person and speak truth in love. You're going to go to that person and speak truth that punishes. You're going to go to that person to point out the wrong and speak the truth with an attempt to get retribution and vengeance. And there's no reconciliation going to happen there. All you're going to do is escalate the situation. So it has to start with your commitment to forgive, and then you go out of a heart of love and speak the truth in love with the heart of transforming the person, not punishing the person. Quickly, let me point out two other things before we're done. Forgiveness and accountability. Forgiveness and reconciliation. These last two are quick. Forgiveness and trust. A lot of people wrongly assume that to truly forgive someone, you have to immediately restore those people or that person to the same level of trust you had with them before they sinned against you. And that's just not the case. Forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. If I'm walking in biblical forgiveness, I make a choice to not hold past actions over the other person's head. And I always leave the door open for them to earn trust back. But it's just that. It's earned back before it's given. Forgiveness is given, but trust is earned. And here's the fourth and final misunderstanding about forgiveness. Forgiveness and empathy. We're not very empathetic people to a person or groups of people that have been wronged and are trying to forgive. Matter of fact, whether it's an ethnic group that's been mistreated, injustice has been committed against them, or some marginalized part of society, or somebody in our family or in our church, when they've been wronged, and we hear a sermon like this on forgiveness, or we read a scripture that's about forgiveness, we're too quick to look at those people and say, hurry up, snap out of it, God expects you to forgive. But remember, forgiveness is a process. It's something you commit to long before you ever feel. So it may not happen overnight. It may not be immediately. We need to learn to have more empathy and patience with people that are struggling and processing through coming to a place of complete forgiveness. Remember, if they have to forgive, it's because something's been taken from them. They've been wrong in some way. And what's been taken from them, they may never get back. Does Scripture require they forgive? Yes. But nowhere does it put a time step on it. It's a choice, a commitment, but it's also a process. As a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, I can talk to you about the process. Because you can go through the process of forgiving 
and come to a place where it's done, but you can't put a bow on it and walk away because something's going to happen somewhere in life. It's going to knock the scab off that old wound and the poison's going to come up again and you're going to have to make another choice to forgive and go back through the process again. You're always going to be processing toward forgiveness. Let me, let me give you a biblical example that shows us we all need to be a little more patient and empathetic toward people who are struggling, especially those struggling to learn to forgive. Think about Job. It's 42 chapters in the book of Job, and it's really 42 chapters of Job ranting and raving against God because of his suffering. Job doesn't understand it. Why? The intent, the purpose. How could God be good and this stuff be happening? It's not fair. And to make it worse, Job's friends come to him, and they're more accusatory to Job than they are empathetic to his situation. But in the end, this is what's crazy and interesting. In the end of the book of Job, God vindicates Job. He says that Job was more faithful to God than his friends were. Because in the end, even though Job never got a good answer to all his questions, he stayed faithful through the whole thing. He never stopped praying. If you read it, all of Job's complaints in the book of Job were complaints that he had to God. He wasn't talking to people. They were rants to God. Even though he never understood it at all, he never quit praying. He never walked away from God. And that's probably one of the most powerful messages of the entire book of Job. You may never come to a place in your life where you say, oh, now I see, Lord. I finally understand why life had to go this way. I I finally see what you were doing and why I had to suffer the way I did. Now I get it. Job never had that aha moment. And you might not either. But Job honestly and authentically struggled before God. And in the end, God honors Job and vindicates Job because he was faithful in his honest struggle. When you see that, I know Job is not about forgiveness, but it's about honest struggle. So when you see that, and then you look at someone who is struggling to come to a place of complete forgiveness, and they are authentically, honestly trying to process through and grow into forgiveness, maybe, just maybe, we should be a little more empathetic toward them. The book of Jude may be a little more empathetic to yourself. The book of Jude says, verse 22, it's chapter 1, but there's only one chapter. So verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. Another place where we're called to be patient to the struggler in a different situation. There are all kinds of indications in the Bible where we're supposed to be empathetic and patient with people who are struggling for one reason or another, especially when they've been wronged. Now, we're not going to read it today, but if you look at Psalm 88 or Psalm 39 or read parts of the book of Jeremiah, the strugglers stay struggling for a really long time. The Bible tells us that we must forgive, but be patient with yourself or those around you when it doesn't happen immediately. The Bible says it has to happen, but you can't put a timeline on it. Don't use that, though as an excuse to harbor forgiveness, unforgiveness in your heart because that's not an option. Simply see it as another expression of God's grace giving you the space to grow into the person he wants you to be. Let your understanding of God's grace and forgiveness toward you transform the way you offer it to others.
and give yourself and the people around you some space to grow into it. God didn't save you and then expect you to act like a saint overnight. You grow into that. It's called sanctification. The same thing happens in the process of learning how to forgive. You make a decision. It's a commitment before it's feeling. It's granted before it's a feeling. It's a choice, not a feeling, and you grow into it. Let me offer this to you today before we close. I, um, I, I research a lot of different places for sermon material, and I, I tried, I saw this and wanted to get it. I couldn't, but it's not out yet. But if this resonates with you in any way, you, because you see this as an issue in the culture, not being taught on or not being fleshed out, all these misunderstandings about what forgiveness is, and you want to look at it in a gospel-centered way, um, let me challenge you. Kim Teller, Tim Keller wrote a new book. It's not released yet called Forgive, Why I Should and How I Can. Um, I'm anxious to get my hands on this book. I've pre-ordered it. It doesn't come out till November the 1st. But if today's message is relevant to your life, Keller always handles modern topics in a gospel-centric way, and I would encourage you. I, I've pre-ordered it. would encourage you to avail yourself of that resource as well to go deeper into what we're talking about today. I want to turn this to our campus pastors, and I'm going to let them uh, pastor this moment at their local campuses today. But here in Saxe, I, I want to ask you to stand with me, if you will, all across uh, this place. And I'm going to ask our prayer team to come, and if they would make themselves available um, to serve you today. And this is what I know, guys. I preached enough of the gospel today that the Holy Spirit could be working on somebody's heart that's never stepped across the line of faith and committed their life to Jesus. And it's just that. You have to be aware of your own sinfulness. It will humble you. You have to be aware of the costliness of God's grace and forgiveness in your life. Then you'll understand how valuable you are. And when you want that, it's all activated in your life by your own repentance. I need you, Jesus. I need you to forgive me. I need you to be the Lord of my life. I don't want to be what I've been. I want to be new. I want you to change me, transform me. Just with that little piece of information, you could make a decision today that would entirely transform your life. And if you want to pray with somebody about what it looks like to surrender, you're going to talk or pray to surrender your life to Jesus, there's no greater honor than we have as a prayer team than to pray with you about that. But we're not just here for that. We're here for anything you need prayer with today, any need in your life especially if you want to process what we're praying about, talking about right now. You want to talk about relationship issues or pray with forgiveness to be unleashed in your life. We're here to serve you and pray for you in any way. The gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. Father, I pray that the power of the gospel today would be at work in our lives. It would not be something we listen to just like another school textbook, but it would be alive and well in our hearts. And today, we wouldn't just hear information, but Lord, it would bring about transformation. Whether these people respond in this moment for prayer today or they just sit for a moment, if this word is relevant to their heart, would you let it incubate? There's not a song we can sing today to, to apply this. It's going to happen when they leave. But Lord, would you let the seed of it get out of the intellect and the head and into the heart, into the spirit, so that it starts to transform who we are. Let the gospel change us. Let the gospel change our relationship. 
Let the gospel change our world. Now, Lord, would you bless them and keep them? Would you make your face shine down upon them? Would you be gracious to them? Would you turn your countenance their direction today? And would you grant them peace? In Jesus' name, amen.